beginning in verse 1, Nehemiah 6. Now it came about when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Geshem, the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. Then Sanballat and Geshem sent a messenger to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Cherephim in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent messengers to me four times in this, ma in this manner, and I answered them in the same way. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Gashmu says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore you are rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king, according to these reports. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you a king is in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king concerning to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. Then I sent a messenger to him saying, Such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. We'll pray. God, I do thank you again um, for what you've revealed of yourself, what you've recorded in your word that, that we need to know. All of these things, God, that we might be profited and might know you and, and walk um, in your ways. And I pray, God, that we would just have your understanding and the insights you want us to have in your word and um, that we might be equipped, God, to walk with you in victory. And I thank you, God, for all that you are to us and all the resource we have available to us in the person of Christ each moment of each day. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, as Mark observed, we're a little thinner this morning. Um, all the His Hill crowd, we asked them to stay home. They were sick last week, most of them, not all of them, um, but they're all tired. And we felt like the best thing they could do is to just stay home and get some rest. And we're just, we're thankful for them and how God has been working through them, how he's using them and sustaining them and um, very grateful. And there's others among our church body, they've been getting this cold or COVID, whatever it is going around. And so they're staying home just to keep others from being exposed. And that's fine. Um, we're looking here at this middle section of, of Nehemiah in chapters 4, 5, and 6. It's really about um, opposition in one form or another, a lot of opposition. In chapter 4, it started out just being ridicule, and that um, doesn't seem to be a big deal until you're going through it and people are laughing at you and making fun of you, and, and it can be a very big deal. But that didn't have its intended consequence, and so they decided they would just attack um, the people of Jerusalem. And so they formed a militia, an army, and they were going to storm the city and, and stop the work on the wall. That didn't work because Nehemiah heard about it, and they made every person hold a sword while they were working on the wall, and so the attack never came. In chapter 5, the opposition is from within. It's internal. And so in, as we saw with that, they... Um, the people are, are oppressing each other. They're, they're not taking consideration for each other. They're not 
adhering to the Word of God when it comes to loaning money to each other. And, there was, and the people were really, really suffering. And so Nehemiah had to deal with that. And now in chapter 6, it's back to external opposition. And, it, and, the, and the temperature has been cranked up. It is, it is really, really getting serious in this chapter. And it's because the wall is nearly completed. So the chapter starts and says, And it came about when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Geshem, the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall, and that no breach remained in it except the gates. Now the attack really, really speeds up. And that's often the way it is. As I've been reading these chapters, I'm sure you're the same. You just can't help but think about how you've come under attack, how I've come under attack at different times, and, and the devil's tactics have not changed. And when the devil sees that what God is doing is about to come to an end, he ramps up his attack. He doesn't get discouraged. He just, he just throws everything at it even more than what he was doing. The attacks increase. He ramps up his activity when he sees the, the end is coming to it, to it um, is near. We know that that happens at the end of, the, of this life on earth. As we approach the tribulation, we know that things are going to get more and more ramped up. And during the tribulation, it gets ramped up even more. And even when Satan is cast into hell, I mean, he is so pernicious in his character, even in hell, he is plotting what his next tactics will be when he's released. Because he knows he's going to be released for a brief time at the end of the millennium, and he just, he never lets up. He never relents. He just keeps coming at it harder and harder and harder. And we should expect that of him. That is the nature of him. He is an enemy that has no compassion and no mercy in him, and, if the, and he simply doesn't give up. If there is any virtue in the devil, and there is not, it would be perseverance. He doesn't quit. He just doesn't know when to say enough is enough. And the same thing is true not only for Nehemiah and at the end of the ages, but also in our lives, even in our personal life, I think, when we come to the end of our lives. We all, I, I know, boy, I'm right there. People ask me all the time. They don't ask me more how much longer you're going to stay at his hill, you know, or are you going to go somewhere else. Now they say, when are you going to retire? And, I, and so much of the time, I, I catch myself thinking, if I could just rest, if I could just be free of the opposition, free of the stress, free of the responsibility. But even if I were to step down from preaching and step down from his hill, the devil doesn't stop. And it is a, it is a, it is a false thinking. It is a lie to think that we can escape the pressure by retiring or changing our circumstances because the pressure is ultimately coming from an enemy. God's allowing it. He wants us to grow. He wants us to be refined. But there is an enemy who is not going to let up. And even after you retire and change and you don't have any more responsibility, that never ends, but it's supposedly, the devil doesn't stop. And some of the greatest trials we are going to face are going to be at the end of our lives. And that's happening here at the end of this project. The devil is just coming at it with everything that he's got. And so they, the enemies try to get Nehemiah to stop building the wall just for a couple of days and meet with them in the plain of Ono. And it's wonderful that it's called Ono because Nehemiah can go, oh, no, that's not, that's not going to happen. Oh, no, 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 no. And so time after time, 
They say, we just want to meet with you and talk with you. What can be wrong about that? Well, where, the meeting site was 25 miles away. And so that's a day's journey. And so it would take him at least a day to get down there, probably another day minimum of conferencing with these guys, and another day to come back. So the wall would stop being built during that time. I'm not sure why, except that apparently Nehemiah is truly indispensable to this job. And God has him here at this hour, and the people are truly, truly dependent upon Nehemiah. It's not going to continue if he steps away from the work, even for a day or two. And he knows that. So he says over and over again, no. So these, that you go, what's he saying no to? Well, there are Presumably, they just want to talk peace. They just want to make things better than what they are. What can be wrong with that? Well, Nehemiah's not dumb. And he understands a few things. One thing he understands is what his central purpose and calling is. And his primary calling is not to make peace with the world. But his primary calling is to fulfill what God has given him to do. And in his case, it's building this wall. And that is primary. Secondary, way down the list, would be trying to make peace with the enemies. See, we reverse this because we, don't, we are so fixated, I know I am, on, on criticism and, and rejection. We think the number one thing that God wants to do is to bring peace. And he wants to use us to be peacemakers. That's pretty hard to get from your Bible. When Jesus is talking about being peacemakers, it's typically about reconciliation within the body. He said, I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. That's the truth. And there is always going to be opposition to Jesus and his work. It's not going to go away. We need to understand that. And Nehemiah did understand it. And so the good thing, supposedly, of just wanting your enemies to, to be at peace with you, is that good thing is less than what God wanted for him. And he sees it, and he goes, not going there. I'm going to focus. I'm going to stay true to what God has called me to do. Anything else is a distraction. The good things can be a distraction to what God wants to do here. And he said no over and over again. So, Four times they come with the same message. Four times he says no. How many different ways can you say no? They don't let up. And see, this is, again, part of the attack. They want to distract him. That's part of it. And he finally perceives that what they're really wanting to do is kill him. Get him away from the town and kill him. And so this is much more than just trying to talk peace. That, that, is, a, that is a falsehood. There's just a deception to distract him, and ultimately to kill him. But the persistence of it is meant to wear him down. And again, this is the tactic of the enemy. So the devil wants to talk peace while really wanting to kill us. He will offer something good. It is meant to distract us from the one thing that God wants for us. To resist the devil, we need to know, as he did, what God's purpose is for our lives and to stand firm in it. We should understand the enemy and understand the nature of people. Some people will never truly be for peace, and we should not be unrealistic in our hopes. 
Satan is a liar about everything. We discern what is going on and what his attacks are, not by focusing on Satan, but by knowing the word of God, knowing the nature of people, and by prayer. The persistence is meant to wear us down, to get us to compromise and to give up, to get us to begin to doubt ourselves. Maybe I'm wrong here. They just keep going, keep going. I remember a staff member of mine um, years ago, he, he left. I never wanted him to leave. He was doing a great job, and he left and went to another ministry. And I said to him one time, I said, why did you leave? And he says, because they just kept asking me to come. They just kept asking me to come. And after a while, I thought it just must be God's will. So I kept asking him to come back. <laughs> but that's, again, the way the enemy will often work is just persistence, just keeping at it, keeping at it. And after a while, you just, you just get worn down and you give up. You stop fighting the battle. You stop resisting. You can win an individual battle and not win the war. And again, the nature, the disposition of Satan is not to give up. And our disposition is to say, I've had enough. I just can't keep going. And you think about how many battles the church is fighting today that it fought last generation and the generation before and the hundred years before and a thousand years before. Many of the same battles we're fighting now are battles the church has always had to fight. And the next generation is going to have to fight the same battles as well. We can't just lay down and say, I'm tired. Things like the authority of Scripture, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, the inerrancy of Scripture. These are battles that have been fought over and over and over again. And they're going to continue to have to be fought because the devil just keeps pounding away on the same things. The sacredness of marriage, the, the, that, that sexual sin is actually sin, and it matters. These are battles that the church has always had to fight. Nehemiah, to his credit, just continues to say no. Well, the fifth time, they changed their tactics. And now, instead of being trying to distract him by pulling him away from what he's supposed to be, for where he's supposed to be now, instead of just being just over and over with the same message, they decide this time to send an open letter of invitation. So it says in verse 5, Then San Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. Now the purpose of an open letter is so that everybody can read it. To spread gossip, slander, and rumor. None of the other letters were open letters. This one was. The other invitations weren't working. The normal, common thing, respectful thing to do would have been to have it be a sealed letter. The other letters would have been sealed. Not this time. They want, Sanballat wants everybody who's, who's handling this letter to read it so that the rumor the, the malice, the slander can spread as wide and fast as possible. And so this was what was in the letter that everybody read. It is reported among the nations. And Gashmu, whoever that is, says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Flat out lie. 
Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king, lie, according to these reports. And you have also appointed prophets, lie, to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you a king is in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. So everybody that hears about this, and you know how things go, the person who first read it tells it to somebody else, they tell it just gets bigger and bigger, and, and the lie just gets blown out of proportion. And now, people, the tent here is not just to frighten Nehemiah and discourage him, but to frighten and discourage the people, but to undermine the leadership of Nehemiah. See, they're going straight at the man. In chapter 4, the attack was for all the people of Jerusalem. In chapter 6, the attack is focusing on one man. Because, again, Satan knows if you can take out the leadership, you can typically stop what God is doing. Never completely, because God is bigger than Satan, but it does a lot to hinder what God is doing when you take out the leadership. So this is meant to undermine Nehemiah, to destroy confidence in him, to question his integrity. Satan spreads false rumors about leaders. The name devil means slanderer, accuser. Satan slandered God in the Garden of Eden to Eve. He slandered Jesus through the Pharisees, saying they cast, cast out demons by the power of Satan. And he slanders Christians standing daily before the throne of God to make accusation against us. He is a slanderer, an accuser, and he is never going to change. We should never be part of his arsenal. It is meant to discourage, to change our focus, and to bring division. Sometimes, as Nehemiah saw, it must be confronted boldly and publicly. It is much more dangerous than ridicule. Ridicule, just let it go. But this kind of slander, just bold-faced lies about the integrity and character and motives of this man, they have to be dealt with because of the impact upon everybody else. His very leadership could be, could be undermined. I had to make the same decision years ago at his hill because there was a person, a couple of people who were um, the effect of what they were doing was, was to undermine my leadership. And one person, actually three different married couples, came to me at three different occasions. One married couple says, Charlie, we just met with these people, and they were asking us all these questions and steering us in a certain direction. And then at the end of it said, don't tell Charlie what we've talked about. And then another married couple came said the same thing. Last thing, don't tell Charlie that what we've talked about. Third married couple comes and says, same thing, don't tell Charlie what we've talked about. So I knew it was time to bring it out in the open. I'd been dealing with this privately, alone, for years. Not talked to any of the staff about what was going on. But when I saw the intent here is not just about me, but it's about the staff and it's impacting all of them. It has to be dealt with head on. And so I had to tell the staff, 
um, what's been going on and what had been going on for a long time. And it wasn't to defend myself. It was not to slander the, um, those individuals, um, but rather to say the devil's at work here. And he's trying to bring division and discord. I'm more than willing to answer any questions that you have. You can come to me about anything. But we have to understand what's happening here and stand together. This is a very serious form of attack. There's a reason why it says in the New Testament, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Because it's very easy to destroy a person on one accusation. Do you know how easy it is? I mean, it's crazy the world we live in. You could, you could call up um, the Child Protective Services and say, our, I, I, I heard there was a child that was sexually abused at his hill. And they will start an investigation. And then our local newspaper will put into the newspaper, his hill was investigated for sexual abuse. Because every time the police respond to something, it's put into the newspaper. So you can see how easy it is to destroy a reputation. We had several years ago that one of the reporters for the local newspaper is going, don't send your kids to his hill because they've been investigated three times for sexual abuse. There was no sexual abuse. False reports being made. False reports. It's the hand of the enemy. And then somebody running around Bernie saying, never send your kids there because of what's happened. Nothing happened. False reports. It is an easy thing to destroy the reputation of an individual or a ministry, and, and, it, and, and sometimes never recovers because of false reports. Some of these things must be handled firmly, directly, publicly, um, as he did, saying these are just bold-faced lies. And still, you know the nature, human nature. You can defend yourself. You can, you can, you can say it's a lie. There's no evidence for this. And there's going to be people who would rather believe the lie than believe the truth. Well, that didn't work either. It's amazing how, how God is protecting Nehemiah. So in verse 10, another tactic. So it just keeps getting worse. Now, and when I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delilah, or Deliah, son of Mahat, these are hard words. Let's just skip to the main part who was confined at home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple. They are coming to kill you and they are coming to kill you at night. And it comes from a prophet. And it's a lie. The man has been bought and paid for. And he's a prophet. But I said, should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save my life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him, but he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Do you remember what it said in the previous paragraph? One of the false accusations about Nehemiah is that he has hired prophets to say that he is to be king. When in reality... Behind the scenes, Sanballat and Tobiah are hiring prophets to speak against Nehemiah, not for him. 
And they're, they're doing exactly what they are accusing Nehemiah of doing, projection. Just like we see all the time in our political parties that, we're, that, that the conservatives are being accused of things, that is true on the other side. Happens all the time. There's no new tactic. This guy, Shemaiah, was locked away in his home. Probably was not sick. Probably was trying to dramatize what the message is he's going to deliver to Nehemiah. Just as I'm locked away in my house, you need to lock yourself away in the temple because they're coming after you and they're going to kill you and they're going to do it at night. Scary stuff. But Nehemiah is such a humble man and clear-headed. It's not, he doesn't even see the deception of it, but he sees that this is wrong. How can this be right? Number one, I have no right to go into the temple. I can't do that. I am not a priest. And only priests can go into the temple. So on the face of it, he says, I can't do that. How can a man such as I do this? I'm not a priest. I can't go in there. But he also recognizes that it's contrary to God's word once again. And when a prophet speaks contradictory to God's word, the prophet is wrong, not God's word. We have to see this. There's so many times people are giving us prophecies, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, and they are anything but words of wisdom. They are straight from the pit of hell because they contradict what God is saying. Nehemiah saw that. This contradicts God's word. I'm not a person who is eligible to go into the temple. But he also understood something else. There are things more important in this life than your personal security, your personal safety. When it came to taking up a sword, he was more than willing to take up a sword in defense of the city and all those who were in their building. But that doesn't mean you always defend yourself. You always focus on your personal security. There are times it's better to die than to take up a sword or to protect yourself. And he refuses to protect himself in this manner. I cannot do this. And he says, I, I, it would be better to die than to go into the temple. That thinking should still govern us today. There are many, many ways that we face all kinds of crises and we think, if I go through this, if I don't compromise, then I will die. We'll die. That's what Nehemiah would say. We'll then die. So what? Absent from the body is present with the Lord. Just die. There are worse things. Worse than dying would be to compromise on what God's Word says to violate what God has laid out so clearly in his word. His goal in life was not his personal safety, protection, his health. His goal was to remain true to the Lord. In verse 12, after he had said, I will not do this, then I perceived that God had not sent him. That is, again, often the order of events that we see in Scripture. That discernment comes, understanding comes, insight comes after you obey, after you obey. 
Many times we're looking to do, we're, we're not willing to obey until we first understand. Why have you said that? God says, obey me. I don't get it, God. God says, obey me. And this is one of those cases where he, was, he just simply was obedient to God, even though it would cost him his life. And then he discerned, not before, but after the obedience. He discerned this was a false prophecy. This was a man who was hired to speak against me. So verse 13, he was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin. Fear leads to sin. That they might have an evil report in order that they could bring reproach against me. And once again he prays, Remember, O oh my God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these works of theirs, and also Nodiah, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. So this man, Shemaiah, was not alone. A whole bunch of prophets, we don't know how many, but a whole bunch of prophets had all been hired, corrupted to give false prophecies about Nehemiah. You see, amazing how difficult this would be to withstand. When you've got the spiritual leaders that are speaking with one voice, and they are all wrong. They've all been corrupted. And amazingly, in the midst of all of this, verse 15, the wall was completed, and it only took 52 days. Wow! With all of this opposition, the walls have been laying in ruins for years and years, generations. And in 52 days, it's done, completely done. And it came about when all the enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Even the pagans see God did this. And that's Nehemiah before the wall. Even when They just got started on the wall construction. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 20, and he says, the God of heaven will give us success. And now, in chapter 6, the pagans are saying, God has helped them. They could not have done this on their own. In the midst of all of this opposition, all these bad things that are happening, the work of God gets done. Oh, so the devil just wrings his hands and goes, oh, my, I lost that battle. Bummer. No. He's going, now I'm going to hit him harder. They don't even have time to celebrate the finishing of the wall. That's going to happen at the end of Nehemiah. And this is the time to say, okay, let's have our parade, let's have our party, let's praise God. No time for it. Because even after they have completed the wall, the devil hits them again. So it came about, verse 16, when all of our enemies heard of it, and they saw they lost confidence, but then verse 17, also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehananan had married the daughter of Meshushalam, the son of Berechiah. Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. Then Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. The wall is finished and the attacks don't stop. 
Victory in one area doesn't mean the devil goes away. He attacks even more. It was Oswald Chambers that says the yielded life is the most tempted life. And I think that's because it's a life of victory. And Satan hates it. And he will constantly, constantly attack the person that's yielded to him and where God is giving victory. Elijah called down fire from heaven and then prayed for rain and then outran a chariot. And in the next chapter, he's running for his life. After victory, he ran away because of the attack that was on him. We tend to relax after victories. Satan doesn't. In this last attack, I think that what they're trying to do, what the enemy's trying to do in using the nobles of Judah is to isolate Nehemiah even more than he's been. Tobiah, these verses tell us, had his tentacles in lots of people around Nehemiah. They had been seduced and corrupted by him. Almost everyone in Nehemiah's circle defended Tobiah, and none of them were loyal to Nehemiah over Tobiah. If they had to make a choice between Nehemiah and Tobiah, they would have chosen Tobiah. I knew a man that was involved with, with um, torchbearers and was also involved with Bethel Ministries in California. There's a lot of difference between Bethel Ministries and torchbearers. And he was asked, if you had to make a choice between these two, which would you choose? And he said, Bethel Ministries. Well, that says where the loyalties are. And these men around Nehemiah, the, the leaders, the rulers of Judah, had their loyalties toward Tobiah, not Nehemiah. So Nehemiah, think about that. Every, all these powerful people, people of influence around him who should have been on his side. The wall has just been finished. If this was ever a time to be loyal to Nehemiah, and they weren't. They're loyal to this guy who is half Jew and half Ammonite, and he has been the principal opposition against the wall. And they're loyal to him. It's incredible. And they have nothing but good to, see, to say about him, and it's like, have, do you not remember what this guy has done to stop, try to stop the building of the wall? This is one of the guys that wanted to kill Nehemiah? Do you not remember? And they just don't even recall it. All they can think about is all the good that he says. This is a serious attack. You remember, Nehemiah is a cupbearer. The purpose of the cupbearer was to run interference for the king. So he would not have these kind of people getting at him to harm him. Now Nehemiah is a ruler without a cupbearer. And all these people around him, they are feeding him bad information. They've been corrupted. They are not loyal to him. What do you do? He's not in a position to fire them. And in fact, he does nothing. This is the one attack that is so powerful because he is powerless to do anything against it. He can't, all he can do is just, you know, it's almost like he's being gaslighted. He knows how bad Tobiah is and everybody in his life is saying you're wrong. He's not bad. And there's no record of Nehemiah saying anything to rebuke these guys. What do you do? 
And again, you can just feel like you're, if, if you're looking to people and, and, you, and you're, you, you can feel like you're losing your mind when everybody around you is saying, what is the big deal here? But you stop, you pull away, you look objectively at what's going on, you look at God's word and you're going, am I the one that's wrong here? I know what God's word says. Reminds me of that student we had years ago. He, he, after being at his hill, as many of our students do, he went to a secular university, and he was just being attacked, attacked, attacked constantly in the classroom, in the dorms. It was like he, he, had, he, 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 like he couldn't find another Christian. He was just constantly being attacked. And he told me one day he was standing out in the common area where hundreds of students were we're just filing by, and, and he's standing out there in this courtyard, common area, as people are going all to their classes, and it just hit him. And he's looking at all this massive humanity, and he says, I'm not the one who's lost their mind. I'm the one who knows the truth. This is a very powerful attack of the enemy to make us think we're the only one. This is what Elijah fell to. I'm the only prophet. He wasn't the only prophet. But the enemy wants to make us think we're the only one. And sometimes before God shows us that we're not the only one, all we have to, can go on. And what he wants us to have, the only thing to go on is just his word. This is what God has said. This is a serious attack. He is being isolated. These leaders were all compromised spiritually through their relationship with Tobiah. And it's not surprising that they praised Tobiah. Proverbs 28.4 says, Those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law strive against them. And there is, as I said, no resolution offered in the text for this particular trial. It is a big thing. What are some lessons here? There are many. But the basic one, Satan is trying to bring down specifically the leaders. If his attack against the whole body is not successful, he zeroes in on the leadership. That means pastors, elders, ministry leaders. It also means husbands, head of the household. And the men, the head of the households, are going to be under particular attack. As he attacks the whole family and he's not finding the success that he wants, he will zero in on the husband. We need to recognize this, and we need to stand with those who are in leadership and to pray for them. In the home, wives, be part of the man's defense not against him, but part of his defense. Nehemiah did not have his co-rulers standing with him. They were against him. And how, I mean, again, God can cause a man to stand, but it is so much harder for a man to stand when his wife is not standing with him. One of the reasons that I've always appreciated having Patsy travel with me when I'm teaching is not just for the company and that I get better accommodations uh, when my wife is there and people treat me better. Um, 
but I know that she's praying for me and that she's with me. She's in the ministry with me. And she's heard me teach Life of Solomon, Life of Kings, more than I've taught it, I think. And, and um, she's always there, always listening, and I appreciate it because I know she's with me. She's standing with me. She's praying, and it is so vital. One of the biggest discouragements that, that a leader can have is to have his staff not with him. The biggest discouragement a husband can have is to have his wife not with him. We need to understand this is the attack of the enemy. This is the way that he works. To see it and not give in to it. It's clear from these passages that Satan never gives up. He has in him not an ounce of compassion or mercy. He is cruel to the core. He lies and gives lies that have not a shred of truth in them. He assigns bad motives to good people. And the ultimate response that we have at our disposal is always prayer. We come to God, who is our defender and our refuge. But the big thing is I think about, and we're going to see this more as we come into chapter 7 and on to the rest of the book because it doesn't stop. These are the main chapters, 4, 5, and 6, that talk about opposition, but it's all through the book. The big thing is the takeaway, I think, here is not, again, as I've said before, what an incredible man Nehemiah is, that he's able to withstand all of this. Nehemiah is not a superman. I see the different movies from time to time where you have these superheroes, you know, one, one guy, he may just be an average guy, but he knows martial arts or something, and, and he can fight off 10, 15, 20 people at the same time. He, and it just, you'd think it was choreographed, and it is. <laughs> you know, nobody even touches him. He is just such a great fighter. Or one of the superheroes, you know, the Avengers movies and stuff, you know, and, they, and you can just throw a thousand bullets at them and they just, you know, they can always just, just dodge them, put their hands up and block them, you know, or the wristbands they're wearing or whatever. And no, nothing touches them. Occasionally, maybe somebody gets knocked down, but they don't die. They just spring right back up and they're right back at it again. Superheroes. There are no superheroes. There is God. There is Jesus Christ who has defeated the enemy. The only explanation for how Nehemiah is to withstand these constant assaults from every conceivable direction is God. He's a man who is humbly trusting his God. And he's a man with a nature just like ours. And I know there are times in Nehemiah's life he's just going, God, I can't take another attack. And God sustained him and strengthened him. That's the takeaway here. You can know all the tactics of the enemy, but you're not going to be strong to resist him because he is much more powerful than we are. The only strength we have for resisting him is Jesus Christ. He is our strength. And we stand firm in Christ. I'll close this in prayer. God, I thank you again that you are totally available to us. You are more than adequate 
for dealing with the devil. Your word tells us, as Martin Luther sang, in a mighty fortress is our God, that one small word will fell him. We are not able to stand against him. If we were to know every conceivable way that he could attack, we would not have the strength to withstand those attacks. Christ is our strength. And we are sheep without a shepherd, without him. You've given us no defense other than Jesus and your word. And that is enough. Christ and the word of God are sufficient, supremely adequate for everything that we would face. And I thank you for that. I pray, God, that as we think about the different ways the enemy attacks, that we would be alert to that and that we would not be an instrument in his hand as we see our brothers and sisters under attack. That we would not contribute to what they are going through, but that we would be walk with them, pray for them, and be your instruments to give help. That you would work through us to strengthen and to sustain those that are weak and weary from well-doing. That none of us would give up that we would just, again, turn to Jesus one more time and find your sufficiency, God, that you would sustain us in the weariness of this life where we are constantly being assailed. And I thank you that you are doing so and that you will and that you are always faithful to us. In Jesus' name, amen.